0: Hey everyone, this is Siobhan and you're listening to the Creative Outsiders Podcast, where we connect the dots for women storytellers. And today I get to sit and chat with Jelena. Translate my passion into
1: social justice and social good and things that make people actually act and do something different as opposed to just like passively consuming media.
0: So everyone who's listening, welcome Jelena to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here with you. Yes, I had to condense because I had so many questions once I started doing research on you. I was like, we'll be up here talking forever, so let me reel it back (laughs) in. (laughs) And because everybody who has been listening for a while knows one, how I feel about documentaries, but two, also because you are really big into social change, which I love. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask you, why was it important to you to tell stories that spark social change?
1: Well, so one of the projects that I'm working on right now is called Standing Above the Clouds. And it's about the this mother-daughter relationship that is fueling the indigenous resistance on the Big Island. And so through that project I've been exposed to a bunch of different uh, Hawaiian leaders and they really talk about how everything that we're doing now is for the next seven generations it's not really about us Mm. and everything that we're benefiting from is because of the work that people have done like seven generations before us and there's also this Hawaiian word called kuleana and it means like your genealogical responsibility and I think that my like familial genealogical responsibility is to translate my passion into social justice and social good and things that make people actually act and do something different as opposed to just like passively consuming media.
0: That's a really good point. One, I like that, they said, and I mean, I don't, I don't think I thought about it like that, but it makes sense. You know, what we're doing now is going to affect the next seven generations and we can't get caught up in being passive. And I think social media has made it easier for us to see something and say, oh, okay, I care about this or this impacts me in some kind of way, but then we don't do necessarily anything about it.
1: Yeah. Or, you know, now with how insane the news has been, not that it hasn't always, you know, been very troubling, but just recently, you know, with the separated families mm-hmm. but the Supreme court, you know, with this and this and this, there's so many things going on, but there's not as many action points or, you know, things that people can do aside from calling your senator or your representatives, which I think at this point doesn't really feel like it's doing as much as, you know, the severity of the situations really demands. Mm-hmm. So I think, Art is a great way to help and film and documentary film, nonfiction film especially, is a great way to, you know, give people a window into a different kind of life. But then also with my work and with my production company, BreakTide Productions, we are really focused on how can we utilize social media and the tools that we have as a young generation to make sure that people aren't just watching something, but also have a clear path forward after they're finished watching of things that they can do.
0: I like that. I think that's really good because I think it deters people from feeling helpless because if you keep consuming and you see this and you want to be engaged, but then at the end it's just like, okay, you informed me, but then you didn't give me the tools that I needed to go out and leave my mark on the issue. So I think that's very noble of you all. Thank you. Uh, So since you already mentioned it, Tell us about your production company, the name, and why you decided that you needed to establish a production company. A few
1: months ago, I co-founded Break Tide Productions, which is an all-woman-of-color production company. I really felt the need to kind of have a group that, you know, a small group. There's three of us that founded it together, but that really had my back and that we could share resources and help each other navigate, both being documentary filmmakers and also being freelancers, freelance videographers, and you know, building a sustainable filmmaking practice. So you know, these films and passion projects. There's sometimes, or a lot of times, there's no funding, really. Or there is, but you have to work so hard to get it and go through all these different rounds, and you know, write all these different things and put together all these different materials. That it's hard if you don't have some sort of team um, that has your back. And we all really united about the idea that. You know, us as women, particularly as women of color, have always been pushed aside both by white people, white women, and by men of color. And so how important it was for us to join together and to support each other since um, people like us have generally been the support roles and haven't been able to take the spotlight. And that has translated into our stories not being told and young women of color and everyone really not understanding the impact that women of color have had in every single social movement, you know, really doing all of the work behind the scenes, but getting very little recognition.
0: Okay. The three of you all uh, established a production company. So for creatives who do feel like, okay, I want to establish a production company. How did one y'all say, okay, this is creatively the lane I'm going to function in? And then what are some like tips you would give people when you're out looking for your like creative tribe to connect with? Because that is very important for indie filmmakers.
1: Yeah, it's super important. I think, you know, community is everything. And right now is a really great time to be a young documentary filmmaker, honestly, especially compared to previous times, because equipment has become more accessible and there's a lot of different fellowships that are available for, I mean, not a ton, but there's definitely more than there used to be uh, for emerging filmmakers and those can give you a kind of community because you're all selected. But beyond that, I think just going to different networking events and meeting different people and you can really only know if you work well with someone or if you like them by working with them. So Mm -hmm. I think just doing as many projects as you can. If you have no money, there's probably people your age or your peers that also have no money, and you can help each other out on your projects and learn what do you like and what don't you like about a partner. I learned that it's really important for me and a creative partners to have people that can both do the dreaming and the brainstorming and the thinking, but also like stick to a deadline and to a timetable. Sometimes in the creative world is a hard balance to find in, in collaborators, yes. but... <laughs> 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 it's really important to know those things about yourself so you know like who would be good for you to work with and who would not be good but that's all a learning process and I think that's the main like crux of being a young creative is that you're figuring out not only your own voice but also what other voices do you want to contribute to your vision and who do you want to walk into rooms with and that's really why I wanted to do Brightside Productions because I was like it doesn't matter if we're working on a all white set or an all whatever set, I want to make sure that I'm walking in with like people that I know have my back no matter what and understand at least to some extent the point of view that i'm coming from
0: and so when you uh, i guess just to go back a little bit in reference to being a filmmaker and especially someone who is saying that they're going to be serious about their craft now, what as since you are like going through the process and you have now established your production company. What was the first piece of equipment that you invested in as a filmmaker versus today, what you would invest in?
1: Oh my gosh, the first piece of equipment I invested in was a camera. It was the Canon 70D. And I got one of those package deals and they sent me all the stuff, some things I didn't even know how to use. But it just felt good to have that gear in my hands. And I mean, I know that, of equipment has gone down so much, but from my perspective, it's still like, extremely expensive. That's always kind of nerve-wracking making those like, yes. big purchases. <laughs> but I really think ultimately it doesn't really matter what equipment you have. You can make something great with your phone, with anything, but it is hard. And it is a lot easier if you have um this, not as much of the equipment, but I think like the programs and stuff like that to make a refined piece. And also, I think because equipment has become more easily accessible, there's this idea in terms of freelance stuff when you're doing higher jobs, there's this idea that like you can do things for no money or for very yes. little money, but then they still expect the quality of like something that was shot on an ARRI or in a, you know, something that's like right. they expect the quality of like a $50,000 camera, but they want you to shoot it on like your iPhone or something. So right. that can be, that's a tricky part of like, where
0: film is right now, I think. How did you know what to price your, you know, like, your work? Because y'all also, yes, you do your individual projects, but then y'all also provide services as filmmakers. Mm -hmm. So how did you figure out how to price? Because the thing that I'm seeing a lot of creatives struggle with is we undervalue our work. We, because we want to do our art so badly and we want to put out work that we will like underbid our work. So did you ever, exactly? Yeah, did you ever especially struggle with for, that?
1: Yes, I, I continue to struggle with that. I think, you know, especially for women, especially for women of color, we have been taught to undervalue ourselves and hope that someone else will be like, no, you're worth so much more. Mm-hmm. But that's the great thing about having a support network. I'm, par- I'm part of some other really great support networks too, namely Brown Girl Doc Mafia, which is a Facebook group of all women of color in documentary. And then there's also ADOC, which is the Asian American documentary network. But it's nice having my two co-founders because they're, even though I'm part of the Facebook group, like they're the ones that I am texting being like, okay, what do you think about this much? What do you think about this much mm-hmm. for a specific job? Something new that we're going to be putting into place at the end of the summer is that we really want to be focusing on our passion work and not have to do like pay jobs that we don't want to do, which obviously is what everyone wants, but the idea that we need to raise our rates, especially if companies and, you know, organizations that we're working with are not only using the content that we provide, but are also using us as, you know, young women of color filmmakers as a marketing point for them, that we need to make sure that we're being paid (laughs) accordingly. Yeah, but it's really hard, especially because, you know, it's different if you were going to do an ad for Google than if you were going to make a video for, like, a nonprofit that maybe helped you when you were growing up or something like that, you know? Right. So right. we try and give a range. And even if we're working with nonprofits, we still say, like, this would be the commercial rate. And then say, like, but we can work with, like, what whatever budget you all have and, like, talk about that as an ongoing process.
0: Also, as a creative, I know that... We, you know, well, women specifically, and I believe brown girls, um, have you put in place and your um, community, do you have the things in place just to support as far as on the mental health aspect? Because I know that's a very big thing for creatives. Like, we create art and we take in other people's issues, but we don't necessarily compact ours like we don't look at our own issues and assess them so do you have any tools or tips or things you do that you do to take care of yourself basically self-care
1: well that's a really good point I think we haven't made anything really set yet but I think that's a really good idea personally I like to journal a lot because especially it is something that I'm just trying to like get better and better at but especially as a freelancer creative etc like it can get confusing what you did, what days, and, you know, mm-hmm. kind of where time goes. Mm-hmm. Um, so I realized that just, like, writing things down and being able to go back and being like, oh, this is how I felt this day, um, this these are the things that I did, and giving myself permission to feel, you know, the most that I want to feel when I'm writing about it in my journal, because in real life, I know that we censor ourselves a lot about ex- you know, especially women of color about the range of emotion that we allow ourselves to feel about particular issues. So I find that to be really helpful. But you know, what you're saying about taking in other people's problems and internalizing them, that is very, very real. And it kind of works through every single part of the filmmaking process. You know, it's hard when you hear it from the person during production when you're talking to them. And then it's also hard when you're editing, editing it together and thinking about how can I present this, that other people understand it the best way and kind of show it with the love and care that it deserves Mm -hmm. so it can be really really tricky and i think that's when it's really great to have a community to lean on and who understands what you're going through and it's also good to have friends that are not in the community that are doing like something completely different so that you don't have to talk about like work stuff and they just have a completely different perspective so i think having both of those communities is really helpful for
0: that so how did you as a filmmaker find your voice
1: I think I'm still finding my voice. It's a process. Mm -hmm. Um, I knew what kind of stories that I wanted to cover first, which was stories that highlighted the strength and capability of women of color. Um, So my first film is about female construction workers in Myanmar. And that was such a great learning experience. I feel like every time I do a project, I learn so much, not only technical skills, but also like my emotional and physical strength a lot of times, carrying equipment around, problem solving, different issues that arise. And you know, throughout the whole process, all the way through distribution, just so many new things come up and you learn, okay, I like this, I don't like this. If I had the opportunity, I would want to go back. And then on the project that I've been working on the past few months in New York, I've been following this really phenomenal young woman named Nadia Okamoto. And when she was 16, or when she was 14 to 16, I believe, family was homeless in Portland. And through that, she learned that one of the biggest issues facing homeless women is menstrual supplies, and that, you know, period products were as expensive as food for the whole week. And so people would either have to like steal them or use like dirty socks or brown paper bags to adjust their periods. And so she started a nonprofit that Um, provides free period supplies to homeless women around the country and in 14 other countries now. And she's only 20. So I've been following her around as she's been doing different talks and stuff like that and being a one woman band. So shooting and doing sound and everything. And so that has also really taught me about my voice and my perspective and also what kind of voice and perspective I have. And what kind of choices that I can make when things are really tight you know in narrative you have so many options you know you mm-hmm. can set the lighting exactly as you want the setting but the thing I love about documentary and nonfiction is is you're always on the go and it's always that thrill of making the best out of the situation as it presents itself and I think that's why I've chosen to do documentaries first because having kind of restraints on setting and other things but being able to grow my creativity and voice within those restraints been my priority and then once if there ever comes a point where I'm like, all right, I think I'm ready to (laughs) move away from documentary, then I'll use the voice that I've crafted through that work in narrative pieces as well.
0: I think that's a good point. I I think that's part of the reason why I'm attracted to documentaries because it's, I mean, don't get me wrong, I love scripted, but I think it's the point that it's real time I don't get to manipulate the the subject like I don't get to dictate like how you're going to maneuver. So I do think that's the thrill of it. And for people who are considering doing documentaries as their starting point, what is a suggestion you have, okay, if I'm following somebody day to day, what it, what do you do to prepare for that?
1: To prepare for making a documentary?
0: Yes, like um, let's say okay, I know I want to do a documentary, I have the resources, what do you do to prepare yourself with the subject and for the subject to be aware? Because I think sometimes people are naive if they are the main character as to what is expected when you're filming them.
1: Yeah, so I think communicating is everything in this, I mean, I guess that could be said for across industries, but especially in documentary, because you are someone is trusting you to tell their story unless you're telling your own story in which case you know you don't really have to have those conversations with yourself but you do need to prepare yourself in some ways for what that will be like so I know there's a really big push in documentary right now to be thinking about your audience from like pre-production and development and so I think that really helps so the first thing when you're thinking about your film is What kind of form do you want it to take and who do you want to see it? Like, where do you want it to go? And I know that we all think like, oh, I want everyone to see it. Mm -hmm. But at this point, like, that's probably very unlikely. (laughs) So you have to think about like, who is your priority? Is it the community that you're telling the story about that you want to be able to, you know, see this work and benefit from it the most? Or is it like a quote unquote traditional documentary audience that would be probably more... Elderly, Caucasian, wealthy—that would go to like film festivals and things like that, or some sort of mix of both—and then prepare the people that are in the film accordingly, because those—that's how you'll know how to talk to them about, you know, who's going to see this, what is it going to be like, um, and really also share parts of yourself with them, because in order for someone to trust you, you have to make sure that it's a two-way street and not just them the ones that are always giving themselves up for you but more of a collaborative effort
0: i think that is very important like you said communication and then with the young lady you just were speaking about because that is a very sensitive subject when i was reading i was like i can't wait till it comes out because i need i need to know what's going to happen it's just it's inspiring <laughs> because she's so young and i'm like mm-hmm. she has this nonprofit, profit and she's like leaving this really big mark already so when there is a, a topic that it is sensitive because that it, you're dealing with homeless people and then women mm-hmm. and like their feminine hygiene, like that's really personal, even for somebody who what isn't homeless. So how are you able to maneuver around that? Because one thing I think about just social media wise, you know how social media now we see like people recording just like everything. And it's so abrasive yeah. sometimes. Yeah. And I know we're not that way because we're filmmakers, so we're, like, ethical, or at least we try to be. So how do you... How are you in this documentary maneuvering around that sensitive subject?
1: So the thing that's really interesting about Nadia, who um, is the woman that I'm following, is that she speaks very publicly about her trauma and, you know, her past, because it is, like, the origin story of her work has to do with her trauma so you know every time she does a speech every time she talks about her work she talks about being homeless she talks about you know as I've been filming her she's opened up a lot more about trauma with her dad and how that it's domestic violence that pushed her family to move across the country and is the reason that they didn't have a support network and were vulnerable to poverty the way that they were So it's been very interesting, particularly with her. Obviously, every person is different and you have to, you know, feel out what that person will be comfortable with and also talk to them about what they are and are not comfortable with. But with her, since she talks about her trauma so much so publicly, I found that it was about how to find new and interesting ways to approach it or Mm -hmm. to have her talk about it and for the audience to feel something. Because sometimes if if it comes across as a practice speech, it was kind of alienating for audiences, and even though you know she's talking about these things that are very difficult and very you know sympathetic and empathetic and things that would be very easy to you know to shape her to be a lot less of an uh, amazing person than she is. Mm-hmm. Um, but because she was so practiced of talking about it in initial screenings of *Work in Progress*, some of the people in the fellowship that I've been doing to create this film we were a little bit off-put by, by her and the way that she talked about her trauma. So that was really interesting and not something that I expected. Um, so then I worked with her to, you know, talk about that stuff off the stage and dig a little bit deeper and think about how you can really processing trauma and learning from it and growing from it and being able to talk about it are not always the same thing. Just so, and just like feeling out how that's working for her. But it's actually, I'm going to release a short version of the film, but I think it's actually going to be transformed into a feature as well because she's such a compelling character and all of the strands that I wanted to connect about, you know, social media activism, that's something she's very involved in, and menstrual health, that's what her organization is about, and then this link between domestic violence and poverty and how that comes down on women, and particularly women of color, are not things that will fit into
0: a short. Right.
1: (laughs) I'm excited to be continuing that project.
0: That's good. I I definitely could see that being a feature. Yeah, that's a lot to try to put into a short. Yeah. (laughs) As a filmmaker and you're continuing to expand and grow as who you are, is there anybody that you as a filmmaker would love to work with?
1: oh my gosh, there's so many people that I would love to work with. (laughs) I think, okay, the first person that comes to mind is Issa Rae because I just love her. And I feel like she's done such a great job at creating her career her way and also making space for so many other people. And one thing I remember that she said in some interview was that, you know, everyone's trying to network up, but the real Mm -hmm. magic happens when you start networking across because those are the people that are really going to like work with you and be there for you. And you can all build your careers up
0: together. So I was like, oh, (laughs) Isa, tell us more. I remember that line. I was like, that's such a good line, because people do. Like, everybody wants to network out. And it's so true. Mm -hmm. And And the people that are up, like, they don't really want to do anything with you, you know? No, they don't. (laughs) They don't. It's just like, no, we're up here winning. And you're going to just have to figure out your own way. So yeah. I think that's probably one of my favorite lines that she said. It's good. That's a good one. What is the next for you? I know you're working on your current documentary. What's next for you and what's next for the production company?
1: So next for me is that actually in on August 1st, I'll be going to Hawaii with um, one of my Breakhead co-founders and a lovely producer named Amber. And we're going to be working on a short version of the documentary about the Native Hawaiian protectors of Mauna Kea, which is the most sacred mountain in Hawaii, and there's this 30-meter telescope that has been proposed for over 10 years now to be built, and they tried to start construction in 2015, and then the warriors, or Kukia'i Mauna, as they're called, um, went up there and stopped the construction, and since then they've been in a really long, extremely prolonged legal battle, as legal battles go, doing different contested cases and filing a Supreme Court case that the telescope infringed on their religious freedom and religious rights. And so the Supreme Court case, the final testimony was just heard June 21st. And so we'll be there in August documenting the mother-daughter relationships that are fueling this resistance and the cultural significance behind the mountain and why it's so sacred. So I'm very excited for that. And we'll be launching a crowdfunding campaign shortly for that project.
0: That sounds exciting. <laughs> mm-hmm. That sounds really exciting. Like I, Yeah, that would be really interesting to be there during that time. I can't wait. You have to make sure that you um, let us know when you all get ready to do the crowdfunding for that.
1: I definitely will. Thank you.
0: You're welcome. And then what's next for the production company? Do you have any projects that you are currently working on?
1: Yeah, we do. So um, my short Nadia documentary should be out in the fall. And um, one of the other co-founders, Alex, she's been working for a while on this documentary about lead poisoning in Oakland, Fruitvale, which is um, a sector of Oakland, I guess. Yeah. The lead poisoning is actually worse than in Flint. Wow. And people don't really, yeah, and people don't really know about it. And the school, the Oakland School District is most likely lead poisoned, but they won't test the water because they don't have the funds to address it if it comes back that there's lead um, in the drinking fountains in the public schools. That's crazy. So that should be a really exciting piece. <coughs> Excuse me. Yeah. And we're actually exploring how that could perhaps be used, how we could use social media or something else to um, innovate the way that story is told because it's quite a dense topic. So I was just trying to figure out the best way to deliver the information, but she's been working on it for, I think five or six months now, interviewing a bunch of different community members. Um, And particularly in Oakland, gentrification and lead poisoning are hand in hand because um, there, there was lead paint and then there's specific ways that you have to break down the building so that the paint doesn't get into the water. But because of the housing boom in Oakland, um, because of the tech influx, those proper channels were not used. Mm. And um, a lot of things were torn down relatively haphazardly. And land- landlords could also use this lead paint as an excuse to kick residents out um, and tear down the building and then renovate it and charge a lot more. Of so course, it's a very, okay. <laughs> of course, yes. And of course, it has a lot to do with race and socioeconomic status as well
0: as these things always do. Wow. So I do have a question. I guess it's more or less personal, like documentary filmmaker to another. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Because you are covering topics that are, I'm not going to say taboo, but just sometimes it's easier for people to turn their back to it because we can feel like there's just so much crap going on in this world right now. Mm -hmm. How do you stay encouraged to do it? But then also the biggest thing is the F word, funding. How then do you find (laughs) your funding for this? (laughs) Because like, it's, I'm not going to say it's easier, but like, if I'm telling a story about like comedy or, you know, something that's like funny and entertaining, I just feel like it's easier to get funding for that. So how are y'all battling funding for this?
1: Yeah, so funding is the trickiest part, I think, for all filmmakers, but obviously, especially for people from marginalized communities, because we don't just have tons of wealth that we can, you know, Mm -hmm. rely on. For instance, at grant interviews before, I've been asked, like, oh, don't you have a cousin with a trust fund that can pay your way? Wow. And yeah, just different things like that. I'm just like, no, like, why would that be the expectation that you'd have to have so much family money to be in film. And I think that's shifting a lot, which is really good. We try and apply to as many fellowships and other things like that as possible. Because the really tricky thing about funding is that it's very much bandwagon Mm -hmm. um, mentality. And so if you basically get one big label on your project, then many more will follow. And I was very fortunate to go to Sundance this year through Project 1324, which is an Adobe initiative and there's like these big producers and agents there talking about how much money there is out there and how there's these people that are looking for you know diverse voices and interesting new projects to fund but there's just this big gap between those people and those of us that are doing the work for me it seemed like you know doing different fellowships and stuff like that is the best way to get your name out there because these big organizations like sundance or ford foundation or you know firelight any of these places they Seem like such giants but it's really like five to ten people that work there and so once you know those people it can go a really long way and even if they don't fund you they can you know give you feedback and help mm-hmm. you and then this isn't something that I have personally explored as much but I've heard a lot about people looking for other avenues of support as opposed to the traditional like documentary um, funders so I heard about one filmmaker doing an environmental documentary and they got an engineering firm to fund it mm. almost fully because the engineering firm has some sort of um like slush fund or pro bono something that they need for tax reasons i'm not exactly okay. sure all the ins and outs yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah but i mean if you can find that that's great um but yeah it is a struggle i think a lot of people end up going to crowdfunding because it is a way and it's a lot quicker. Mm -hmm. Um, The thing about grants that's really hard is the timeline. It can be like four months and you still don't hear anything and so for these projects that are urgent that can be really tricky. How to like the whole idea of funding is very much tied to how can we build a practice that is sustainable because if we don't have any money like we cannot sustain this work. So whether that's a mix of doing paid jobs and like passion projects or you know, finding either traditional or non-traditional methods to fund those passion projects. It's all about the balance and all about the hustle. And hopefully, as we reach those financial positions of power, which hopefully happens at some point, we'll know to make sure that we're reaching back and making opportunities for other people. And also, I've been hearing a lot about how, you know, there are wealthy POC that are involved in tech, that are involved in media, that are involved across different industries. And so how important it is that someone or some organization is doing work to mobilize those donors and make sure that they are using their financial privilege to share the stories
0: from their own communities absolutely and i think that's a good point even what you said about okay you went to got in the fellowship in sundance correct
1: yeah well i just went with um project 1324
0: Okay. So I think that's the thing that it's, I'm finding is the big gap. And why I try to post anytime I see on any avenues, because I like try to do research and read and I try to post it on our social media. But I think that's where mm-hmm. the big gap is, is that people of color, we don't know that like a fellowship exists, especially if you are the first person in your family line or friends who, um, is a filmmaker like for me that was the thing like I don't there's nobody else in my family that's a filmmaker like everybody's like gang ain't do it <laughs> and they're like but how are you gonna do it so I think that's the that's where the gap comes in because we're just not aware of the opportunities that are out there or even that I don't necessarily have to use crowdfunding I can go and go to this, like, business and say, hey, don't you want to invest in this because it's going to affect your business? So I think that's just where the big issue I'm seeing comes in. We just don't know.
1: Yeah, and on a more basic level, more basic but also societal level, I think it's really important for all of us to start talking about money more openly Mm -hmm. and talking about, you know, how much people are making and using statistics. I think there's this, like, cultural taboo around money where... You can only vaguely say, like, what you need or what you're looking for. But I think that's a detriment to us in the things that we're trying to do. Like, if someone is making over 100 k doing some tech job that they don't find very fulfilling, then how much are they going to use that privilege to support other things? Hopefully a lot, but that's yeah. not what we've seen, unfortunately.
0: Hopefully a lot. And if you're listening to us... <laughs> We would <laughs> gladly take the donation and go tell an amazing story that you can say you are a part of. Yes. Yeah. I'm glad that you didn't mention that too, uh, because I think it's just very, really important. And then it's just very encouraging to get us, especially women to apply to the fellowships, because I think that's another thing too. We just don't apply. Are you in Brown Girl Doc Mafia? no but now that you said it like i'm gonna join i'm gonna be in there okay good you need to be in it because that's where you find
1: out about the fellowships i think like groups like that people post them all these different opportunities and you know it is super exhausting to keep applying to stuff and sometimes never hearing back and you have to figure out you know what is worth applying to just because a lot of them have application fees but Mm -hmm. that's really how to get your name in the game i think
0: yes so everyone who's listening, you know, I'm an encourager. Apply, of course, do your research, do your due diligence, and see what mm-hmm. it is works best for you. Because everybody needs to be saving their coins. And I know everybody who are creatives and filmmakers were frugal, so you gotta stretch your yes. money. <laughs> gotta stretch your money. So, um,
1: and I just started reading "Behold the Dreamers" by Imbolo. Mubei, I believe the last name is, and mm. it's also a New York based <laughs> book about it's fiction about the chauffeur for one of someone high up in Lehman Brothers as that collapse goes down, and it's just such a great read.
0: Okay, uh, if well, you don't know, but I'm a a book junkie, so it's so sad. Like every time somebody is on the show and they tell me a book, I have like ordered it, and I just have a stack of books. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Have you read Behold the Dreamers yet? No, so now I'm going to have to get it. (laughs) Yes,
1: it's so good. Oh, and the last thing that I was thinking, you know, just about documentary and about encouraging people, I think it's such a fantastic line of work to be in because every day you are living your values and your principles. Mm -hmm. And it makes it really challenging because every day you have to make decisions and decide, like, are you going to, you know, live up to the things that you profess or are you going to not to, but not everyone gets to do that. And not everyone gets to choose, you know, what they want to do, what they want to focus on, who they want to be interacting with. And then that's a great gift that we should not take for granted.
0: You know what? That was, see, I'm a fan of one-liners. <laughs> I call them one-liners. I'm going to have to write that down in my journal. No, that's a very good point. I mean, that I think that's why I'm so passionate about documentaries because I feel that way. Like I want to tell people stories who, especially, well, specifically women who embody being able to overcome and then excel and like make a difference in their community. Like that's so important to me because we usually, and there's nothing wrong with men doing that. Like, I don't want people to think like I'm men bashing because I'm not, but we always, growing up, we saw, like, you know, a man coming in and making an impact in his community, changing it. Mm-hmm. And we just didn't see that for women. And it's like, like you said, even, like, if you look throughout history, like, women make it happen. Like, we will be on the ground working and we will change. And especially if it's something we are passionate about it, we're going to go do the work and we're going to make it happen.
1: Yeah, and a lot of those men that are revered by history, they would be nothing without the women that supported them, fed them, took care of their kids, yes. did all the flyers for all their
0: events, cooked yes. for all their meetings, and sometimes literally did their jobs for them. Yes, yes, yes. So that's a very good one-liner. So when you see me <laughs> talk about it, I'll be like, she gave me all the best one-liner ever. Like, it's the best one. <laughs> yes. Well, I enjoyed that talk and I am a big supporter of people supporting one another. So let us know how we can stay in touch with you, social media and how else we can connect with you.
1: Yes. Thank you so much. I am a big supporter of that too. Um, my production company is called Break Tide Productions and we're at Break Tide on Instagram. My Instagram is at Jelena.kl. Um, and our website and all of our other information is on there. So I think that would be the best way to stay in touch. Our Facebook pages are also the same as Instagram, both my personal one and the one for break type. And please reach out if you have any project ideas or you want to work together, because we're always open to that.
0: Yes, make sure you reach out and you connect. And you all know that um, if you have questions, you can send us an email at the creative outsiders at gmail.com. And also if you are trying to, to connect with us on social media, you can go to Instagram, you can go to Facebook and also make sure that you don't just talk about it, but you be about it. Go live those filmmaking dreams. Make sure you subscribe, leave comments, give us feedback. Let us know what you want to hear from us until next time.